1: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, in the belly of a beast, discovering a young dinosaur's last meal. The technician discovered small
3: toe bones that were poking through the rib cage of the animal. Now, those toe bones were far too small to belong to the tyrannosaur, and they were coming from inside
2: its gut. And nature adds biological armor to the Great Wall of China.
1: It's just so cool that something that I think is amazing and I've devoted my career to, which is the biocrust, is helping to preserve one of the most impressive human structures in history.
2: Plus, a robot answers the call to build a wall. Canada geese pull together when times get tough. And why microbes might save us from ourselves. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Tyrannosaurids are the most famous theropods, a group of mostly carnivorous, often gigantic dinosaurs that walked on two legs. These dinosaurs were apex predators, and a menace to smaller dinosaurs of the Cretaceous era. Like all dinosaurs, they hatch from an egg, and we know they could eventually grow into terrifying multi-ton adults. But not much is known about the Tyrannosaurid coming of age, the stage between hatching and teenager. Well, now a first-of-its-kind 75-million-year-old fossil from Alberta is shedding some light on this fierce dinosaur's salad days, which, of course, didn't include salad at all. Dr. Francois Terrien was on the team that made the discovery. He is the curator of dinosaur paleoecology at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta. Dr. Terrien, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me about this fossil. When was it first discovered?
3: Well, the specimen was discovered in 2009 by a technician from the Royal Terror Museum named uh, Darren Tanki. He was prospecting for fossils in the Badlands of Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is situated in southern Alberta. And then he found, sticking out of the uh, the bedrock, found bones that he identified as belonging to a young tyrannosaur. So immediately, that was a very exciting discovery because skeletons of young tyrannosaurs are very rare. The big tyrannosaurs have big bones. They're easy to, to discover, but they're also easy to fossilize, whereas the bones of young tyrannosaurs are much more fragile. So that's why they're much rarer.
2: Now, you say it was young. Um, I mean, first of all, how big was it?
3: So the young tyr- Rhinosaur was only a fraction of the size of an adult. It was uh, about five to seven years old, weighed around 330 kilos, and would have been about four and a half meters long. So we're talking in terms of length, half that of an adult, but in terms of mass, it's basically a fraction of that of an adult.
2: It's still a big animal, though.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. In terms of length, it's as big as uh, what modern crocodiles uh, reach today.
2: Now, is this species of tyrannosaur related or the same as the famous Tyrannosaurus rex?
3: Yes, uh, the species we discovered is called Gorgosaurus. It's a close relative of T. rex. T. rex is the superstar, the, the big representative. When people think tyrannosaurs, they immediately think of T. rex. But T. rex is kind of the exception. Most Tyrannosaurs were smaller animals, and Gorgosaurus is an example of that. At, at an adult age, maximum size would probably be, have been around 9-10 yeah, meters and could have weighed up to 2 tons.
2: Well, what was special about this juvenile fossil?
3: during preparation, when the specimen was cleaned and exposed when the rock was removed, the technician discovered small toe bones that were poking through the rib cage of the animal. Now those toe bones were far too small to belong to the tyrannosaur and they were coming from inside its gut. So so we had a group meeting and decided to pursue this line of research and flip the specimen over and prepare it from the inside out. And it's at that time that we discovered the bones of two small dinosaurs that had been ingested and were situated where the stomach would have been when the tyrannosaur was alive.
2: So this was the dinosaur's last meal?
3: Essentially, yes.
2: So what did it eat?
3: Most dinosaur species are described or named based on their skull. So here we had a little bit of a puzzle trying to determine the the identity of a dinosaur based on its legs only. Fortunately for us, the species to which the legs belonged is called Chidipes. It's a very rare animal and it's only known from foot bones. So since we were dealing with complete legs, we were able to get a a good match between the, the known foot bones and our legs. And interestingly enough, the legs we have found in the stomach of the tyrannosaur actually represent the most complete skeletons known for the Chiripas species. So the best known specimens are known because they were swallowed by a tyrannosaur. So uh, so it's really exciting.
2: (laughs) So so what was this uh, dinosaur that it ate?
3: Yeah, it's a small oviraptorosaur, so it's very similar to the famous egg-stealer oviraptor from Mongolia, and superficially would have been about the size of a big turkey, and would have looked a little bit like cassowaries, those big uh, uh, ostrich-like birds that are alive today in uh, Australia and uh, New Guinea.
2: So if you found only the legs of its prey in Gorgosaurus's uh, stomach, does that mean that it ate the animal whole, bones and all?
3: Our animal, actually, what based on what we found in the stomach, seemed to have been almost surgical in the way it dissected its prey. It just dissected away the hind legs, swallowed them whole without uh, chewing them, and then left the, re- the, the rest of the carcass behind, not even bothering to, to eat it. (laughs)
2: So he was interested in uh, the drumsticks, just like a fussy kid.
3: (laughs) Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody loves drumsticks, uh, so did tyrannosaurs.
2: (laughs) So you have this dinosaur that's preserved itself, plus its stomach contents. How are they preserved so well over all this time? For big dinosaurs, we don't find stomach contents. And I think it's because these
3: animals are so big, you would need a big event to bury the whole carcass. Here are small animals. Trinosaur must have been buried very soon after its death, such that, yeah, the the part of the carcass that contained the, the stomach was never exposed so it could be preserved.
2: So, how does the meal of this juvenile dinosaur compare to the adults?
3: Based on tooth marks left on bones, we know that large tyrannosaurs fed on big plant eaters like duckbill dinosaurs, horned dinosaurs, and the likes. But because young tyrannosaurs look so different, they had those very blade-like teeth and very weak bites, we always presume that they fed on something much smaller, but we didn't really know what. So now here our specimen is actually the first fossil evidence that we have that young tyrannosaurs fed on small dinosaur species and on very young dinosaur individuals. Because the the pests we found in the stomach are actually very young. They're yearling animals, meaning that they're not even a year old. So it seemed to have, uh, that tyrannosaurs seem to have liked a baby, to feed on baby dinosaurs.
2: So what do these different diets tell us about the lives of the Tyrannosaurs?
3: Well, uh, this research reveals that uh, Tyrannosaurs underwent a a change in diet through their lifespans. When they were young, they fed on small dinosaurs and young dinosaurs. And around the age of 11, that's when they underwent a physical transformation. They started becoming more robust, their teeth transformed from being blade-like to being killer bananas, and their bite force just started increasing exponentially. So it's around that age that they transitioned into being apex predators, meaning that they were top predators feeding on big animals like duckbills and horned dinosaurs. So it shows that not only these animals... Change their diet through lives, but they occupy different ecological niches at different stages of their life. So that's unique to tyrannosaurs.
2: Are there any examples of this among animals living today where the young and the adults survive on completely different diets?
3: Yes, we observe in most animals that don't have extended extended parental care, just like mammals and birds that where the parents capture the food and bring it to the young, most other animals, reptiles, crocodiles, fish even, they undergo that change in diet through uh, through their lifespan and seems to be something really uh, typical. For example, if we look at komodo dragons or crocodiles nowadays, when the youngs are born, they actually start eating very small prey, like insects, then they graduate to crabs and fish, rodents birds, small mammals, and then as they get bigger and bigger, they start feeding on bigger uh, bigger prey. So it seemed to have been the same in Tyrannosaurs. As they grew, they had um, uh, higher energy needs because their metabolism would increase, so they need to eat more.
2: I guess that's also true for modern humans. I know I don't eat much baby food in Pablum anymore.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's great <laughs> when you're a baby, but yeah, there comes a point where you
2: have to uh, to, to grow up, essentially. <laughs> Dr. Therrien, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Francois Terrien is the curator of dinosaur paleoecology at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta. Farmers in many parts of the world have long figured that the best way to deal with large rocks in their fields is to gather them up and use them to build stone walls. Traditionally, this has been done by hand, one stone at a time, and these dry stone walls have become something of a point of cultural pride in some places. That's because it's a challenging task to take stones of different sizes and understand how to fit them together so they can be strong and stable so those with the skill to build them are celebrated. But now they can be replaced by a robot. A team in Switzerland has figured out a way to hand this challenging task off to a machine. Dr. Ryan Johns from the Robotic Systems Lab at the Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland, and his team developed the system. Dr. Johns, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, describe the robot that you've been working with. What's it look like?
0: Yeah, so this is, is really, if you can imagine, a, it's, a, it's a 12-ton excavator, similar to the kind of excavator you see every day on construction site. It was originally built for very technical terrain, and it has wheels built into its outriggers, so it can kind of walk in addition to drive to balance itself on uneven ground. Uh, but it's essentially a traditional hydraulic excavator that we've modified with robotic control to allow us to essentially use this big machine like a robot.
2: So what are the modifications that you've made to it to uh, have it build walls?
0: One of the biggest things is equipping this thing with perception, so the ability to kind of see and measure the terrain around it. So we have multiple LiDAR sensors measuring the 3D world around it. We have those sensors mounted on the arm itself, so it can reach over and look behind the wall, see where rocks are while they're being placed. And we also have those sensors mounted on the roof of the cabin where it can actually see objects in front of it in order to pick them up Uh, hold them in its hand, and and 3D scan them.
2: Now, when you say LIDAR, that's that laser uh, range-finding that can identify objects, tell how far away they are in their shape?
0: Exactly. It's it's basically taking a lot of little measurements of distance that gives us this kind of 3D point cloud representation of the environment around it using the combination of multiple sensors.
2: So take me through the process step by step. What does the robot do to build a wall?
0: Yeah, so the, the first thing we do is we scan the environment Uh, using a combination of LIDAR and camera. So we use a learning-based segmentation approach to recognize these individual objects, and we use that 3D point cloud to understand the shape of what you can see. And the machine essentially picks it up, recognizes enough of the top that it can plan how to grab it. It picks it up, and then while it's holding in its hand, it spins it uh, 360 degrees while collecting 3D kind of point cloud captures of that surface and images to then produce a full 3D model of that stone, which gives us a very clear understanding of things like its volume, its center of mass. And then the robot puts that stone down and it continues to do that for all of the stones that are in its, in its environment. And once it has an inventory of what we usually use, something like 20 to 40 stones, then it plans where these stones should be placed to build up this wall.
2: Wow. It's a, it's sort of like uh, a kid surveying Lego pieces before putting them together. You pick them up, you look at them from all sides. Exactly, exactly. So you get
0: this kit of parts, and then you have to figure out how those parts go together to build a wall.
2: So these stones that it's picking up, they're all different sizes and shapes. So it has to first understand what that rock is like, and then where to put it while building the wall. Like, oh, I need a big one here, but I need a small one there. Is that the idea?
0: yeah exactly so these rocks are, are very very different in size and shape we have rocks that are a couple hundred kilograms to rocks that are a couple of tons we have uh, pieces of demolished buildings you know a, a chunk of a broken staircase and at the same time we have a, a boulder that was dug up on a neighboring construction site that's very round or one that was quarried that's very irregularly split and the machine basically is always understanding these complex shapes and and it's trying to figure out how these stones fit together in a way that's stable, that also aligns with that desired shape, and that also fits nicely with the rocks that are already in place.
2: So what has your robot been able to build so far?
0: Uh, we built two large walls. One is a, a 10 meter long and four meter high wall that's about 1.7 meters thick. That consists of 108 stones that are a mixture between very large irregular regular granite boulders or nice boulders. And uh, and and chunks of concrete, and then we also built a, a very large scale retaining wall, which is actually a permanent piece of infrastructure in a, in a publicly accessible park in Oberglatt, Switzerland. And this is a sixty-five meter long wall that's six meters high and that has almost a thousand stones in it.
2: Wow! And this is all without mortar. The stones are just piled on top of one another.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So these stones really. The planner is is, in, is figuring out how these things interlock. You know, they're they're supporting essentially hundreds of tons of material. We've pushed on them with force sensors to make sure that these things are stable, um, and also you know pushing downwards, lifting up the whole machine on the top of the wall. These things have have survived quite some testing, and and the retaining wall again has has actually been standing for quite a while, and and is expected to stand hopefully indefinitely.
2: Well, what could robotic wall building machines mean to the construction industry?
0: Yeah, I think when you look at the construction industry, it's it's a very big industry. It's something like 13% of global GDP. And the production of concrete alone or or cement uh, results in about 8% of global CO2 emissions. So it's a very, very high energy factor that's required to make these materials. And what we see is that these robotic tools can let us build with those materials that are much more efficient And that make use of really the materials that might otherwise get thrown away. You know, oftentimes these boulders are a nuisance. You're digging them up and you have to get rid of them. And we see that, you know, if we can reuse these materials as close as possible to their original form, we save a lot of that processing energy that goes into trucking these things away to a different site, grinding them up to produce aggregate that then goes into new concrete. Um, If we can really instead use these whole monolithic pieces with very little processing uh, this can greatly reduce the emissions associated with
2: construction processes. Now, there's a lot of talk about uh, building on the moon and on Mars. How do you think these robotic excavators could fit in there?
0: Yeah, you know, I think this is definitely a place where we see this as a, a, a very likely application of our of our solution, where, you know, if you think about historically how people tended to build these rock walls, you went out to go and and have a farm. And there was all these rocks in the way of where you wanted to be plowing your fields. So you took the rocks and put them to the side, and you made some second use of them to build a wall to separate out the fields from your neighbor's fields, or to keep your sheep in. And on the moon, we have exactly these problems. You've got these areas that you need to use to drive, you don't want to have bumpy surfaces that are, you know, causing problems for your vehicles. Uh, At the same time, you need to build things like blast shields to prevent uh, you know, ejecta from, from damaging infrastructure whenever a, a spaceship lands. And so I think we see this as a, as a high opportunity to kind of take those materials out of problematic places and put them to use. Um, and if we can avoid having any kind of complex processing or manufacturing, really just, you know, stack these materials that we find as they are, we can build things very efficiently and, and in a robust way, also in an extraterrestrial.
2: Dr. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Ryan Johns is a researcher in the Robotic Systems Lab at the Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, Switzerland. (laughs) Canada geese may be iconic, but let's face it, they're not always the most friendly birds. That's something Eric Jingles from Moncton, New Brunswick discovered and told CBC News about last spring.
0: I uh, survived an attack from a cobra chicken. I was out for a bike ride Sunday evening. There
3: was uh, a family of geese. The big one at the end started to like hiss and I thought, "Oh, isn't that adorable?" And then all of a sudden it launched.
2: Now, you or someone you know may have had similar experiences with these notoriously stroppy birds. And of course, when geese are around, you don't just have to deal with beaked velociraptors, you also have to deal with their copious, messy waste. And in recent years, there's also been the more serious concern that they could carry transmissible diseases like the avian flu. <laughs> It's for all of these reasons that some communities in Canada, the U.S. and the U.K. have decided to cull geese. But there's concern about what happens to the rest of the flock after a cull. Well, scientists in the U.K. decided to look into this. One of them is Dr. Nick Royal. He's an associate professor in behavioral and evolutionary ecology at the University of Exeter. Hello and welcome to our program.
4: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me.
2: Why were you interested in what happens within a flock of Canada geese after a cull?
4: So one of the, um, the things that we were particularly interested um, with the Canada geese was actually understanding how social connections within the flock could impact disease transmission if that flock was perturbed, for example, by removing individuals in a cull.
2: Well, before we get to your action on the Canada geese, are there other examples where species were culled and, and had some kind of effect? Like what normally happens?
4: So this did happen um, in badgers in the UK. So when the badgers were culled, this um, led to an increase in their ranging behaviour of the uh, surviving um, animals. The response is to uh, disperse because the social group has been disrupted, it has been broken up. And this is potentially of concern because this could increase the spread of TB, which is a transmissible disease that they carry and has obviously got kind of important implications for transmission to animals such as uh, cattle.
2: Now what disease are you concerned about with Canada geese?
4: So avian flu is potentially the big one, that's an important disease, uh, but also things like Newcastle virus and other diseases that could be transmitted between individuals so through direct contact or might be related to contamination of areas that um, you know lots of individuals use which is potentially important for flocking species such as Canada geese
2: Oh, I see. So what you're concerned about is that if you break up, uh, say, a family of geese or a group, they may do what the badgers do, leave the area and spread disease more.
4: Yes, that's one of the potential concerns associated with this, and that's why we wanted to do the study.
2: Well, how did you go about testing how the social dynamics in a flock of geese plays out after a call?
4: So, first of all, we had to mark the birds individually so we could recognize them. We put neck collars, which were bright colour and had individual identification numbers on so this allowed us to identify uh, individuals and then we established which individuals they interacted with in a social group over a long period of time so right the way through the entire year and from this we constructed our social networks and then we recaught the individuals, some of the individuals were removed, they were culled, and then the other surviving individuals were released and then we did the, the same procedure again over a similar period of time. This allowed us to construct the networks following this cull and so we could compare the different social structure as it related to this intervention, so before the cull and then after the cull.
2: Okay, well, let's set the scene here. First of all, how many geese are you talking about, and how do you round them up?
4: Okay, so we managed to capture 191 geese, which was about (laughs) a third of the population at the Cotswold Water Park. Wow. And we rounded them up with kayaks on the water. So we did this uh, during a, a period of the year when they're molting. And so they're unable to fly, and this makes them much more amenable to actually capturing them.
2: <laughs> that must have been quite a sight, a bunch of kayaks herding geese like
4: sheep. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> well, certainly, I mean, like, it was, this is quite funny the first time I saw it. So it would have been very, very interesting for any onlookers.
2: Now, before the cull, what kind of family dynamics did you see among the geese?
4: So, it depends on the time of the year. They're very gregarious during the autumn and winter. That's when they kind of like they form these larger flocks where they spend a lot of time uh, socially interacting with one another. And then in springtime, they disperse into pairs during breeding and then subsequently with offspring that have been raised by those pairs. And then those family groups go back into the larger social flocks in autumn and winter. So when you view these larger flocks in autumn and winter, it it might look homogenous. There's actually quite a bit of structure within those flocks. There will be family groups and individuals that are already known to each other.
2: Okay, so once you herded your geese, you marked them, you watched them for a year, you established their relationships with each other, how did you perform the cull?
4: We were culling at the sort of rates that are normally applied across these sort of studies, so it was around about 20%. Once we'd round them up and we we herded them, they were in these pens, and then individual geese were taken out, and it was all done out of sight of other geese. And they were dispatched using lethal injection by trained vets.
2: So how did you choose which geese were going to be euthanized?
4: So we were deliberately targeting groups that didn't have young. It was all individuals that hadn't bred, and then it was just random.
2: So after the cull and you let the birds go again, how did that affect their social dynamics?
4: So perhaps surprisingly, culling didn't actually increase social uh, connectivity. What they were doing was they were strengthening ties with old friends and family, and they were only making a few new friends locally. There was also very little evidence of any change in ranging behaviour from the birds as well.
2: So the family stuck together and they did not disperse like you saw with badgers?
4: Correct, yeah, that's exactly the situation.
2: So what does that mean then for how effective a cull would be in stopping the spread of a virus like avian flu?
4: Well, it implies that um, if you applied a cull in the way that we applied the cull, that the geese are very robust to the social disruption caused by this cull. And so it's unlikely that culling would impact the spread of any pathogens.
2: Well, the Canada goose is sort of a national symbol here in our country, and uh, how are they sort of considered in the UK?
4: Well, they're an invasive species in the UK, so they were introduced um, several centuries ago as ornamental birds, um, but they've subsequently spread right the way through the UK. So um, so they're found pretty much anywhere where there are water bodies except in really mountainous uh, regions, and the population is is quite substantial now. Typically, people are either sort of ambivalent about them or if they do have kind of feelings about them, they tend to be kind of reasonably negative due to the fouling that the birds cause around water bodies and the fact that they can be sometimes uh, aggressive, particularly towards um, pets and the like.
2: (laughs) So it's not one of our most popular Canadian exports. Uh, Sorry we couldn't send maple syrup instead to you.
4: (laughs) Yeah, that that would have been much more popular.
2: Dr. Royal, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Dr. Nick Royal is an Associate Professor in Behavioral and Evolutionary Ecology at the University of Exeter.
1: I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them, about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. The inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt Scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following the big story wherever you get your podcast.
2: I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio One. Coming up later in the program, harnessing the power and innovations of microbes to tackle some of our biggest problems.
5: We have more microbes on this planet than the observable stars in the entire universe. Mother Nature has enormous solutions just around us.
2: The Great Wall of China is one of the most famous structures on Earth. Built over more than a 1,000 years, it was a system of defensive fortifications that helped to provide a frontier against nomadic northern raiders. The full extent of the wall's construction covers more than 7,000 kilometers, winding in multiple sections from the Yellow Sea on the country's east coast to the desert in the present-day Gansu province. Now, the image you may have of the wall is from the famous tourist photos which depict an elaborate stone structure winding over hilly territory. But that's not an accurate reflection of most of the wall. Vast lengths of it are composed of just tightly packed earth. Of course, over hundreds and hundreds of years, you might expect such a structure to experience erosion from wind and rain. But a new study has found that biology has collaborated with engineering to protect much of the structure. Dr. Matthew Bacher is an associate professor in the School of Forestry and associate director of the Center for Ecosystem Science and Society at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Bacher, welcome to Quirks and Quarks.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: First of all, tell me about the part of the wall that your team was studying. How was it constructed?
1: This part of the wall, it's about a 600 kilometer uh, stretch in pretty much the middle of the extent of the wall. And it was constructed using rammed earth. And that means that soil and other materials were piled in between wood forms and then pounded down in layers and built upwards until the wall was created.
2: Oh, so it's just dirt. It doesn't have the, uh, the bricks that you see in the tourist photos that, that, are, that are very strong. It's just, just dirt.
1: Primarily just dirt. Dirt, sometimes gravel, sometimes tree branches, but not bricks.
2: So what did you see when you examined these earthen parts of the wall?
1: Well, these earthen parts of the wall, it's very common for them to have a biological soil crust growing on their surface. In fact, over two-thirds of the studied portions had this biological soil crust or bio-crust. You can think of it kind of like a living skin. We usually find them on regular soil surfaces, but in this case on the Great Wall, which is made out of uh, soil in this area— And this is uh, this skin or cohesive layer engineered by tiny plants and microorganisms working together, things like mosses and also cyanobacteria, which your listeners may know
2: as blue-green algae. So other than the Great Wall of China, where would we find these?
1: Find biocrusts? You can find them in in dry places throughout the world on soils, so all the major deserts of the world, for example. They're very common in my home state of Arizona.
2: Now, you call this biocrust living skin. So, uh, I mean, is, is it like an armor for the Great Wall? How thick is it?
1: Usually only millimeters thick, so very thin, but it is kind of like an armor, and it, it functions in different ways. It's, it's not just a physical covering, but it's also binding and weaving together those soil particles on the exterior of the wall into a, into a tougher coating.
2: So then how does that protect
6: the wall?
1: Well, it will hold the particles together when um, the wall is uh, experiencing rainfall and um, you know, sandblasting from windstorms and things like that. And it, it will also help, keep, uh, help reduce the amount of moisture that's seeping into the wall, and that helps keep it intact as well.
2: Oh, so it's waterproofing.
1: <laughs> yes, it's sort of waterproofing it.
2: I, I'm thinking of that uh, synthetic netting that you sometimes see landscapers put on uh, on steep hills by the roadside to keep the soil from falling.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a, a thin protective blanket.
2: So is, is it actually uh, also like structurally holding the wall together?
1: Really just the exterior. It's helping the exterior from flaking away and gradually falling apart over time. And um, if the bio crust wasn't there, we would we would expect the, the surface to become pitted and flake off. And uh, eventually, a bigger and bigger sections of the wall would, would fail. And um, we might lose entire sections of the wall.
2: Wow. That's interesting because usually when uh, you see stuff growing on things like, uh, I don't know, the walls of a house or something, it's actually deteriorating the concrete or the bricks. But here you're saying it's providing a protective layer.
1: Yeah. And... A big reason for that is that these bio crust, they don't have roots. They don't have things that are deeply penetrating into the wall and kind of like pushing it and breaking it apart. Um, instead, they're just uh, coating the surface. And also, since they're not allowing tons of water in, they're not uh, leading to uh, shrinking and
2: swelling. Okay, so it's good for the wall to have these uh, organisms living on it. What's in it for the plants and the microbes that are within the bio-crust?
1: Well, they get a surface to live on that's free of bigger plants that might shade them out otherwise. So they get this big open slate of habitat.
2: Now, have you seen these bio crusts on any other man made sub- uh, structures?
1: I personally have not. However, I would be unsurprised if this wasn't common. It may just be an underdocumented phenomenon. <laughs>
2: So, how long do you think this uh, biologically constructed uh, artificial skin will last on the Great Wall of China?
1: Well, potentially indefinitely because it constantly renews itself. Um, it's living and growing. So, if a, if a patch was lost, it could, it could regrow. So, it's not going to last forever. The wall's not going to last forever, but it's lasted centuries so far. So, I would be unsurprised if it didn't last centuries into the future.
2: Do you think the builders of the Great Wall knew that this would happen?
1: No, I think it's a happy accident. I don't think there was any planning involved. <laughs> um, it's just a biological phenomenon that occurred. There was an open space for life, and the life took it.
2: What went through your mind when you realized that the Great Wall of China, you know our largest human- made structure on the planet is being held together by plants?
1: I think it's amazing, and it's just it's just so cool that something that I think is amazing and I've devoted my career to, which is the BioCrust, is helping to preserve one of the most impressive human structures in history.
2: When we humans think that we can build something that lasts, nature always has a better answer.
1: Yeah, that seems to often be the case.
2: <laughs> Dr. Boker, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. It's been fun.
2: Dr. Matthew Bacher is an associate professor in the School of Forestry and associate director of the Center for Ecosystem Science and Society at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. This year, we've seen one climate-driven disaster after another. From deadly heat waves to record-breaking wildfires to devastating floods, the momentum of climate change seems to be building. Add to that our pollution problems. Microplastic, anyone? We need solutions, and we need them fast. We're getting to the point where we need to consider all kinds of ideas, no matter how, out of the box. Well, now there's a growing chorus of scientists who argue we can help solve some of the huge problems our planet is facing using organisms so tiny you can't see them with your naked eye. They're suggesting what we need is a microbial revolution, an effort to harness the power and capacity of the planet's dominant organisms. Here's an example. An exciting new idea to get biological help to transform a vast, unused landscape to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and store it underground as rock. One of the scientists behind this idea is Dr. Bert Hurt, a professor of plant genetics from the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. We reached him in Paris. Hello Dr. Hurt, welcome to Quarks and Quarks. Thank you. Now, what is the landscape that could help pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere?
6: Well, the landscapes are arid landscapes, so it's uh, maybe something which is not very uh, useful for agriculture, but it's actually very useful for savannas and forests, and um, these arid landscapes have very different properties, so people usually think they're not very useful, but in fact, for carbon sequestration, they could be a game-changer. Now, when you talk arid landscapes,
2: you mean desert?
6: Well, deserts are hyper-arid landscapes, but I'm talking also about arid landscapes. That is much, much more land. About 30% of our terrestrial land is actually arid landscapes. And so this is a huge area that goes right from America right through Africa. It's actually a region that you find in the north and in the south of the equator, South of Canada, that's for sure. (laughs) Okay, so you're talking
2: about lands that do get a little bit of rainfall then?
6: Yes, yes, so they get a little bit of rainfall and that means you can also have some vegetation there. But humans have unfortunately also been destroying a lot of the vegetation that exists there, mainly by too many animals that are overgrazing these areas they have degraded the land, they have degraded also the vegetation, and the idea actually comes from restoration of ecosystems. And um, in this context, we discovered that there are very unique plants that are growing in these arid landscapes, and that are producing a lot of some specific carbon molecules that they pump out of the air simply by photosynthesis, like all plants do. But then one quarter of the photosynthetic carbon that they fixed into the soil. And in the soil we identified specific microbes that can actually use this carbon and deposit it in a stable form so that it basically becomes rock again. Now what kind of plants are you referring to? These are many different plants so not every plant is really useful for that but we found that most of the plants that are living in these Arid zones have already adapted. So it's basically just what nature has developed. And we have just like gone there to uncover it again. So why are the plants dumping carbon into the soil? Yes, this is, I think, something like really amazing, because what these plants are doing is, of course, when it rains, they are growing. But when there's no rain, they have actually used this metabolism of producing these carbonate molecules, which are called oxalates, what we call It's metabolic water. So that is a stock that these plants are just depositing and when actually there is no water they are just using it up and make water again out of it. Wow. Okay, so they use carbon and water to make this oxalate which
2: they store in the ground? It sounds like a camel's hump where the camel stores water and
6: fat so they can use it later. Exactly. Or the ice bear. You know, the ice bear is going to sleep for six months and... It doesn't drink anything, so where does the water come from for its metabolism? It's actually burning fat, right? And then this fat is of course serving as energy, but it's also making water out of it. So this is like metabolic water that we know very well from animals. But here we have metabolic water in plants.
2: Okay, so the the plants have this metabolic water that they store. How do you get the carbon then to remain in the soil so that it doesn't go back up into the atmosphere?
6: Yes. So this is actually an interesting story because here we need microbes that can use this oxalate that comes from these plants. So they live on, on oxalate. And one quarter of the oxalate that they use for their own life is like a waste product. And this waste product is carbonate. And carbonate is something that is normally an unstable molecule. But in these arid regions, the soil is very particular. So it has a high pH, it means it's alkaline, there's a lot of calcium, and under these conditions, when there's also a long dry period, this uh, carbonate becomes calcium carbonate, which is basically like rock. And this can stay in the ground for decades or hundreds of years. So it's just pumping the carbon from the air through the plants into the soil. Okay, so we've got the plant that first captures carbon from the atmosphere,
2: combines it with water to store it in the soil as this oxalate. Then the microbes in this soil use some of it, and this converts it into rock. Is that right?
6: Yes, that's, that's, <laughs> that's correct.
2: How much of a difference do you think this would make in terms of uh,
6: carbon sequestration, taking carbon out of the atmosphere? Right now, there's at least 14 countries, like Turkey, Sudan, South Africa, Argentina, Australia, Uh, China, so all these countries, they are actually planting one-third of all the forests that are planted. These are in these arid countries. So if these countries would actually use this technology, this would be a, a major factor for reducing carbon in the air back into the soil. So you've actually seen that kind of transformation occur in an arid region? We have an experimental site where we are doing different types of tests with different types of plants how to transform basically back or restore a desert into a savanna type of ecosystem. Dr. Hurt, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Dr. Harry Burt Hurt
2: is a professor of plant genetics from the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. Now this is just one example of harnessing microbes in new ways that could help us solve a major environmental problem. As we confront the legacy of the Industrial Revolution, climate change, and pollution, some scientists are advocating solutions that amount to a microbial revolution. Dr. Parwinder Kaur is one of the scientists who sees the way this brand of biotechnology could bring us a more sustainable and healthy world. Dr. Kaur is an Associate Professor of Biotechnology at the University of Western Australia. Hello, Dr. Kaur. Welcome to our program.
5: Thank you so much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: First of all, what would a microbial revolution actually look like?
5: Well, it's not very different from the industrial revolution we've had. So microbes, as we all know, these are these humble little things that we need a microscope to look under to be able to observe them. And sometimes you can't even see them through the microscopes. And interestingly, I'm not sure how many of the listeners know that we have more microbes on this planet than the observable stars in the entire universe as per the data from the European Space Agency. So, you know, microbes are everything (laughs) and everywhere.
2: Okay, so there are a lot of them. They're everywhere. How might their life cycle allow for opportunities that we can harness to solve our problems?
5: Yeah, that's actually their biggest superpower when you compare it with the other life forms, because microbes are tiny. Their living machinery is very simple and simple means fast. Okay, so they're very, very efficient, which kind of gives them a very short life cycle and to be able to go through the entire process in a very, very short and efficient way.
2: Now, we just spoke to a scientist about how microbes can help green arid lands and put fossil fuel carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it underground as rock. What are some of the other major world problems that we might solve with microbes?
5: Actually, it can help us solve quite a lot of problems. If you talk about new pharma and new vaccines. So I've had the pleasure to work with India where we have the two major waterways, which are very holy and spiritual, Ganga and Yamuna. But because of the the pollution that has happened in the last 50 years, there's quite a lot happening in those waterways. And when we went into those waterways to do sampling, they were a beautiful source to learn about antimicrobial resistance. And they could be utilized and how harnessed in a new antibiotics or developing new vaccines uh, from there and uh, i'm a believer and more science i do more it kind of gets impressed upon me that how mother nature has enormous solutions just around us
2: beyond pharmaceuticals or uh, drugs what other products could we get from microbes
5: So microbial biocatalysts, they can convert like the carbon dioxide into usable products. They can really help the carbon problem, the net zero we are trying to achieve, which is one of the biggest problems on this planet. So that's kind of help us with the climate action. Whereas the bioplastics is like, you know, life below water is struggling with a lot of plastic pollution. There's already a lot of microbial communities, which were slowly disintegrating those plastics. You know, Mm -hmm. we cannot just use microbes to disintegrate the plastic waste, but microbes are also very useful ways to produce plastic, which is biodegradable, 100% biodegradable. So that's a great solution to have as we move into the future. Microbial biorefineries, they are another very cool application that we could use to replace the fossil fuel derivatives. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, it's great that there are microbes that could dissolve plastic, but how do you scale that up and work it on a practical scale? Because the ocean is very large and plastic is everywhere.
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So the good thing about uh, microbes is they're very, very easy to scale because they're tiny. So, for example, I'm just going to go back to the very traditional bread making and beer making or wine making. All of this industry is standing on microbial production systems like the algae and the yeast we use in there and look at the scale at which we produce alcohol and bread to feed our populations. Mm -hmm. So we could do exactly the similar sort of scaling and the production for these microbes, which are good microbes to end the plastic waste or good microbes to produce the new pharma or the good microbes to give us a lot of environmental remediation in a lot of other spaces like the biorefineries and the biofuels and things like that.
2: Mm. You've argued in your scientific paper that synthetic microbial innovations can sustainably alleviate the conflict between economic process and conserving biodiversity. How would that work?
5: Well, it's an interesting era, Bob, we're living in. Uh, Right now, like the 3D printers, you can go and print things on a 3D printer. In my world, in the DNA world, you can actually go and 3D print that sequence in our dna 3d printers if i may say this so what does that allow that allows us to create life synthetically you know or different snippets of life that are useful for us to be able to do things like ending plastic waste or building new pharma or vaccines that is exactly how we are going to be able to achieve microbial revolution to bring sustainability to our future but also economic diversification so you don't need to really go and harvest hectares of lands of a plant for a tiny biomolecule that the plants produced in their defense mechanism. But you learn about that superpower, and then bring that knowledge into our modern science we call as the synthetic biology. You can print that little snippet which gives that biomolecule and then you put it in a big tank of yeast or you can bioengineer it into another microbe which you can just give sugar and that's exactly what I do in my startup company and it produces biomolecules which are only produced by plants in tiny amounts for their defense but we need them to cure menopause, hot flushes in females. And plants can not scale that up. Or if we do need to get the amounts that we need for a $300 billion industry, I will need to grow those plants in hectares of lands that will require a lot of energy, a lot of land, a lot of fertilizer, water, all these resources which are diminishing on this planet. And how about just producing it in a little beer tank in a little brewery?
2: Wow. That's also how insulin is produced, is it not? That Like it's grown in in yeast?
5: Yeah, no, insulin is grown in yeast. It is exactly how insulin is produced. Mm -hmm. So insulin is a great example of the microbial revolution. Mm -hmm.
2: So if microbes have so much potential, what's holding us back from developing them more fully?
5: I think it's... um, it's going. I mean, the revolution has already started. You will see a lot of synthetic biology companies. There was a report released uh, between Australia and America by KPMG. Biotechnology industry is going $10 billion in the next couple of years. So this, this industry has started. What is stopping is a simple thing. Things you don't see, you don't really pay attention to.
2: Dr. Kaur, thank you so much for your time.
5: Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure talking microbes and everything.
2: Dr. Parwinder Kaur is an associate professor of biotechnology at the University of Western Australia. And now it's time for our Quirks and Quarks question.
4: We'll much about the science Now here we go, dropping science, dropping it all over. Blinded by
1: science. Question, 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 question. question, question. question.
2: Glenn McNamara from Orleans, Ontario asks, In the far north, in places like Alert in Nunavut, for example, the sun never sets for several weeks in the summer. Why doesn't the temperature keep going up and up and up all this time? And here's the answer.
7: Hi, my name is Sarah rue and I'm a professor of astronomy at York University. I think this is a great question because it does seem to be weird that we have so much daylight in the northern pole, and then why isn't the temperature super hot up there? So there's a couple things we need to keep in mind. It is true that the temperature will rise through the summer month by month from those long days of perpetual sunlight. You can see this in the average temperature reported in the pole by the month by month. However, the light at the poles is really ineffective. Think of it as perpetual twilight because the sun is so low on the horizon. Just like a solar panel that's at a shallow angle, the sun just won't generate that much power up there. So the northern pole has this glancing, indirect light that doesn't absorb much energy. And additionally, a lot of the poles have a higher fraction of ice and snow, which reflect a lot of the light coming in before it can be absorbed. So. Those are the main reasons why this temperature doesn't keep going up and up. I personally experienced this when I was up in Alaska. Uh, I was climbing Denali. We didn't need a headlamp because the sun was always giving us light, but the difference in temperature was extreme when the sun was out versus when it was behind a cloud or behind a mountain. Uh, such that the temperature swings were maybe plus 20 degrees Celsius in the day and it would get down to negative 20 degrees at night. So it is, uh, even as a scientist who thinks about these topics of climate and radiation in my own research, it was really interesting to experience that heat swing in the far north while I was up there. Anyway, thank you so much for the question, and I hope that helps.
2: Dr. Sarah Rughheimer is a professor of astronomy at York University in Toronto. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Sonia Biding, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC
1: Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.